Jim, Jim, I don't think he's gonna make it. Ryan, I, COVID, we we gotta we better we better give him a Jenny Creamer. Come on, Ryan, drink it. Drink, drink my rad boy. <sighs> we thought we lost you to COVID. That was a close one. Oh my God, I I saw the light. Wow. But thanks for bringing me back from the light with a with a with a Jenny Cream Al. Oh, wow, it usually takes me the other direction, but I'm glad it it brought you back. Right. Huh? You, know, you know, I shit my dick for those screamers. All right, and this is Robbie D with uh, with a local gym affiliate, and this is the Off the Leash podcast. We are just completely we're unleashing, folks. We're just primordial men here, just doing our thing. We are very primordial, and we are men. It's just dude stuff. Just just dude stuff. Yeah. No, welcome back to the square. Good to have you. Good to good to hang out, um, man. I gotta tell you, I had so much fun. I, I'm I'm so excited to span time with with you guys this week. Yeah, <laughs> I I just uh, even know, though this is our blue period, yeah, this is our blue period. Yes, and and I drive luxury cars. I drive a Cadillac Eldorados. Shifts itself. Shifts itself. Okay, uh, I might not ever be able to stop doing the Vincent Gallo accent for the rest of my life. Shannon was right last week where she's like, I just I can't escape this movie because I watched it. I've watched it two times, like I said last week, and it just like fucking wormed its way into my brain. And I probably will end up watching Buffalo 66 a dozen more times. So if you haven't listened to that episode, uh, whenever you get a chance, listen to it last week. But just like all of us, it's wormed its way into your brain because like like. As I mentioned last week, I've watched that up that watched that movie probably at least a dozen times. I don't watch anything. I have let, the last movie <laughs> I saw in the theater was like Rogue One. Like I don't see any goddamn movies ever. And I've watched Buffalo 66 probably a dozen times. Like the number of movies that I, like the list of movies I've seen more than Buffalo 66 is like Big Lebowski, Bridge on the River Kwai, Cool Hand Luke and that's about it. God. God. Well, that was the ultimate candy episode last week, folks. So this week you are getting some delicious, delicious vegetables. Yeah, cheese covered vegetables. Oh, yes. baked in the oven, mm-hmm. you know, just with all the fixings. I mean, we have an incredible episode. Uh, in a little bit, we'll be interviewing uh, Harper Bishop with Push Buffalo and Dr. Jason Knight uh, with, with Buff State. Um, but first we wanted to go through, you know, a little, little news of the week and see what's going on. Jim, what is happening? Your boy, fucking Stefan Mahailu, all Constance and Terry fold. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I feel very offended on his behalf. <laughs> out there, yeah. out there, announcing that he's going to take away uh, fining rights from the executive branch and from the Department of Health, and he's going to start issuing them through the controller's office and he's got a sliding scale that goes like 
if you get a fine under $100, you have like a year to pay. And if you get fined $15,000 a year or more, you have 100 years to pay. Why not make it 1000 Why not? <laughs> Why not make it like infinite? Why not make it like you can pay it in coupons? Like it doesn't matter at, all, at that point for a hundred years. The like, what an obnoxious thing to say he's going to do. Like make it a hundred year fine. Uh, but you no, know, he's saying that he he thinks he has the right based off of the county charter. Although, as friend of the pod Brian Nowak pointed out on social media, normally when somebody says. I have the right based on the county charter or code or law. They point to the specific part of the charter or the code that they have that gives them that power. And Stefan just said, no, I have it. Just <laughs> hand waves the entire thing. Question. If I had a fine, could I pay it in knock, knock jokes? Probably under Stefan's, <laughs> Stefan's plan. It, it, if you in particular, as a white-bearded man, had a fine, <laughs> you probably could pay Stefan's mm-hmm. fines under in knock-knock jokes. Right. Now, like as I said in the past on this podcast, mm-hmm. if if this was a business that was on like Fillmore or Jefferson, find mm-hmm. those fuckers and make them pay immediately on a cash. But with Stefan's boy, Robbie De Niro. Hey, Bobby De Niro. Hey. Hey. It's the Irishman. Yes. (laughs) The Irishman out there in in, uh, Orchard Park. Uh, You're about to sully the good name of South Buffalo. No, no. You only get that crazy out in Orchard Park, dude. No, you do only get that crazy out in Orchard Park. We're tearing up fines uh, on national television and getting a GoFundMe to pay the fine and then using that fine just to pay lawyers. He he backed off eventually, right? Because he was supposed to reopen, um, and uh, under the consult of his lawyers, he said, oh, "Well, I don't think we're going to do that." Right, right. Under the counsel of his lawyers, because the lawyers were like, "Listen, fucker, like you don't have a case to stand on, and your boy Stefan Mahailu do- doesn't have the power that he thinks he seems to ha- think that he has." Oh, jeez. Well. Ryan, we got to talk. Speaking of local politicians or not quite local politicians. Yes. Yes. We are on Nate Watch. Nate Watch. Nate Watch. We need, we need music just for Nate Watch. I'll work on it. All right. Yeah. We'll get the guitars out. We'll get that Bernie Williamson guitar out. Yeah, I will. Private citizen and Buffalo influencer, Nate McMurray. Um, as always, just an infinite well of, of content for this show. His Twitter feed is just the gift that, by God, just keeps on giving. Uh, tweeted out, we're, we're recording on Saturday the 5th. He tweeted out earlier today, uh, 1.09 p.m. <clears throat> I never smoked pot. Probably calling it pot is off. But I might have to go to at Jacob's NY 27 office and smoke up in protest of the stupidity of his vote and the stupidity of wasting tax money, putting people in jail for weed. Who's with me? Smoke them out. Hashtag weed riot peacefully. I can kind of tell he had never spoken. weed. (laughs) (laughs) It just seems like he seems like that kind of guy. And you know what? I think we would kind of do him good. 
he might he might need some more of that currently illegal in New York State substance. Yeah, well, not for long. Not not for long. What about you, Jim? Are you going to be uh, part of the hashtag weed riot with <laughs> with Nate McMurray? No one's. Hold on. First of all, no one's rioting on weed. No one. No, okay? no one's rioting on weed. It's it's not like. I, I saw uh, like a an old like sixties meme about like uh, it was a, like a an old like sixties like thing about weed and like he's like you think weed's not that bad he tried one toke and then killed his friend in a murderous rage <laughs> and I'm like have you ever met anybody who's ever smoked weed Never. murderous rage is like the furthest thing from what's going on Never. in that that world uh, am I gonna join the weed riot at, at Chris Jacobs headquarters maybe I mean. I probably wouldn't join something named Weed Riot in the first place, but if it was at Chris Jacobs headquarters, known like who, who hopefully will get to a chance to talk about uh, Chris Jacobs when we're talking about affordable housing later with Harper and Jason. Um, but uh, <laughs> were I going to be so dragged into the nonsense that's of something called Weed Riot? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I suppose that Chris Jacobs headquarters is the place to do it. I mean, what was the name of the uh, Paul something was the name of the guy who published the beast when he announced he was running for mayor or Congress and he smoked a joint on the steps of City Hall? <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like for for reference here, we just had the uh, the House pass. Um, was it the resolution? Uh, it decriminalization decriminalization yeah. right measure that sending never, it sending it to the senate which won't get a vote it'll never right. get a vote on but mm-hmm. chris jacobs is behind the fucking eight ball of matt gates florida's own uh shithead sure maga guy but give, he was give, a, give him some credit uh, he was actually a co-sponsor so chris jacobs is behind that fucking tool like that's how far back we are here with what we have that even like this hardcore Trump asshole was co-sponsoring this bill and Chris Jacobs voted against it. So Nate, we're with you. We'd ride all the way. We'll see you there. Right. Can't yep. wait. Can't wait for Go whatever ahead. weeds you want, whether it's marijuana or if it's dandelions, you know, we'll have a dandelion. Well, hopefully sub. eventually some mushrooms, some right, fungi. Uh, right. We can, we're eventually we'll get to the point where we are with like Oregon is where it's just everything, just yeah, whatever. Right, yeah. Just free for all. Right. Jim, speaking of the world of Twitter, you uh, you had just you went at it. You, you went at it with uh, with a local elected official. What? What's going on? I didn't I didn't really go at it. It was it was actually maybe the the friendliest interaction. Well, I that had. doesn't move the needle. Hold on, they went at it, folks. They just like Argh. I'm all for wholesome interactions. By the way, I, there's go not on. enough on Twitter. I mean, it's it's the most wholesome interaction that's probably happened on Twitter in 2020. Um, I saw uh, that. Uh, this was yesterday, so Friday, uh, the fifth, fourth, yes, fifth. Um, remember, remember, remember the fifth of December. <laughs> December. <laughs> uh, that uh, WKBW tweeted out that Erie County legislators have introduced a law that would cap fee services such as Uber Eats, Grubhub, and DoorDash can charge local restaurants during a declared emergency like COVID nineteen. So, and I was like, interesting. I think this is a, probably a good thing. You know, we want to support small businesses and restaurants to as much as we can during a, a pandemic. But sometimes those delivery fees on Grubhub and Uber Eats or what have you are, I mean, they're, they can be restrictive. 
I remember there would be some times when I lived in the Elmwood Village, I'd want to order from, say, like someplace on like Hurdle, and the delivery fee would be like $7 for like my $12 hamburger. And I'd be like, well, this is fucking insane. Like now I'm paying double what I'm for the food I'm ordering just because of the delivery fee. And so this local law caps it at 15% of the total food order. Um, but my response was, how would this impact the delivery drivers? I assume Grubhub, et cetera, are going to make sure that they get their money so there'll probably be less money left for the gig workers, which I, you know, I, that, I just thought that. And I, I got a response from somebody who sponsored the law. Now, this law, re that affects the free market in a way of government intervention. Who do you think sponsored this law? Oh, I don't know. Uh, AOC. Oh, you would think. It was actually Raul Castro and his friend Joe Larigo, conservative member of the, <laughs> the county legislature. Wow, who, didn't see that one coming. Who responded to me with, the law specifically prohibits companies from making up the difference on drivers and so, and posted a section of the local law that he was. And I was like, thanks for the quick answer with a text of local law. And then he linked me the entire local law um, for me to read, which I read. And, and, you know, I was like, you know, this looks like a no-brainer. Um, you know, and I, I even admitted, I was like, you know, you and I, Joe, probably disagree on 95% of things. But I can give a tip of the hat when the other team scores a good point. And in this case, the Republicans did something that the Democrats should have done ahead of time. Well, shout out uh, the and, first, and, the first and last shout out to Joe Larigo on the show. And, and, and he responded to me with thanks. Thank you. I'm sure we don't agree, disagree on that much. After all, we're all really on the same team. We just have some different opinions on how to achieve our goals. I appreciate the hat tip and constructive dialogue. Reach out with any questions and have a good weekend, which Honestly, if that were the fucking kind of interactions that people had between the two political parties in this country on a regular basis, we wouldn't have Trump in Georgia saying that the election was stolen. I always say you just got to hear both sides. And if we just if we just listen that's, to each that's other, something I know you say all the time. I always yeah. say if you just listen to both voices, fuck both sides. <laughs> I got no I got no problem with listening to just one side. <laughs> But I do want to give a I, I do want to give a shout out to Joe Larigo and and this will be the only time he'll ever get one on this show or maybe not but it's it's likely do more stuff like that Joe right you know like fuck let's have him on <laughs> come on let's, let's yeah. just do it yeah. we, we oh my god sure well, yeah, sure we could we can invite Joe Larigo to be on the show we yeah. can call him an asshole for an hour but I mean like well you know. But do more stuff like that, and we won't call you an asshole. It's simple as that. Well, and, and you know, even his point where it's like, you know, we're on the same team, we probably disagree on how to get there. Like, theoretically, that should be true. That should be the, the case of both political parties, is that they want to do the same things essentially for people. They just disagree on how to get there. But that's not the, the case, especially at the national level, right? I mean... One party is like, maybe we should have health care for all. And the other one's like, maybe black people shouldn't vote. 
Not great. That's what it seems like. I mean, so I I don't know that, you know, there's necessarily uh, we're both on the same team type of thing. But I did have a good interaction with Joe Larigo this week, and I wanted to, you know, give credit where credit's due. Credit, credit given. Um, And before we get into the main section of our interview, we do want to give a huge shout out to incredible friend of the pod, uh, Gavin O'Brien. Right, Jim? Yeah, just want to give a quick shout out to uh, none of the three of us here are the type of people who pray. But Gavin's mother uh, has COVID-19. She's in the hospital. Um, you know, she had a CAT scan, does not have a blood clot. Seems like things are, you know, the prognosis is good. But if you're the type of person who prays, pray for her. If you're not the type of person who prays, you at least send good thoughts for her. Gavin's a big friend, big supporter of the pod. Um, he's just and, a friend. Like, he's just a good dude. Yeah, and he's been, like, supportive of us. Yes. And it's just like... I don't. I, again, I've let's, railed, not, let's not pump his tires too much. Well, all right, but I, I've just, I, you know, I've railed on the show about like mask, mask shaming, or like shaming people or whatever. Like, wear your fucking mask, obviously. But just like, there are really people who are suffering of COVID, and there's like a real human. I know cost. people. I'm sure you know people. Gavin's family. Let's right. Yeah. So let's keep him in our thoughts. Yeah. Let's. You know. Sometimes we make light of COVID on this show. Um, but that's just because we're trying to use humor as the only way we can to cope with things. Um, but no, uh, it's a real thing. It impacts people that we care about. Um, even if you doesn't impact somebody that you care about directly it impacts somebody that somebody else cares about and you should be a decent fucking human being and have a little bit of empathy. That's all I have to say. And with that, let's cut to our interview with Dr. Jason Knight and Harper Bishop from Push Buffalo about affordable housing here in Buffalo. It's too damn high. What? People working eight hours a day, four hours a week in a third job. What you gonna do with a load of rent? Mothers can't barely afford to feed the children breakfast, lunch, and dinner. If rent ain't too high in your state, okay, something is high somewhere. Come and run with me. Rent is too damn high. All right, everybody, we are at the square today. Uh, we are going to have an awesome conversation about affordable housing. We have pivoted to an ESPN style debate format, so <laughs> I will actually be arguing in favor of affordable housing and, and Jim is going to argue against it. Jim, why are you against affordable housing? You know, I just think that poor people are stupid. It's a great take. Uh, <laughs> we have, well, I feel, I feel uncomfortable already. <laughs> <laughs> we, <laughs> so we, we have two tremendous guests with us today. Um, two very well-informed guests who can talk to us about affordable housing and, and what that means. Uh, we have Harper Bishop, Deputy Director of Movement Building at Push Buffalo. Hi, Harper. Hey, thank you for having me. Of course. And we also have Dr. Jason Knight, uh, the Associate Professor of Geography and Planning at Buff State. Jason, how you doing? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me. We're, we're doing all right here. We were, um, before the show, we were just talking about King Cuomo and you know, we're getting our, getting ready for our vaccines. And Harper was saying how he's threatening people with the vaccine in his press conferences. Probably not the best way. Out. I don't pay attention. That's my ignorance. Is <laughs> we all have gone through it in this year. So don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. 
So we want to start off this conversation. Um, it's going to be a lot of learning for for me and Jim, and certainly Ryan. He doesn't. He doesn't know anything. Just kidding, Ryan. Right. You know a lot. Um, that, that's not true. I know nothing. <laughs> I know the rent's too damn high, though. Right. Yeah. Jimmy McMillan is all we know about affordable housing. That's our guy, Jimmy. Um, Jason Harper. We're going to throw it to you. So I, I've heard the phrase of before, affordable housing. I have a rough idea, but. When we talk about affordable housing, what do we mean? Um, yeah, I think, you know, we could just maybe start with a definition and, and you know, that definition is different. Um, you know, I guess it depends how much income you make, right? I mean, affordable housing as a kind of standard rule has always been, um, you know, a household is, is living in an affordable housing unit if it's spending less than 30% of its income on mm-hmm. And it's a little bit different, you know, renters um, and, and homeowners, right? I think homeowners, um, you know, at least the research I've always dug into always treated homeowners, the 30%, including um, things a little bit differently than renters, because renters, um, you know, disp- I, I think as a whole, disproportionately pay more of their income on housing needs than, than ho- homeowners. And that's mainly because homeowners tend to be generally better off to begin with, right? So, um, so the 30% threshold is kind of the, the starting point. So like if you're over 30%, you're considered to be burdened, rent burdened. Um, and that has massive impacts on, you know, as, as that threshold or that value you spend every month increases, that has significant impacts on your ability to provide the other things that you need, right? Shelter is one, that's 30%, but um, medical care, clothes on your back, food on the table, right? The more income, income that gets sort of kind of eaten up by, but housing means the other needs that we have, which are absolute needs, just like housing, um, become harder to acquire. Yeah, I actually can't add much more to that. That's exactly right. Um, 30% of the income is what it looks like. Uh, the definition is house burdened and uh, 50% of uh, households and uh, renter households are house burdened in the United States right now. Um, and so that continues to increase in a year that we've seen with COVID-19. Um, that is significantly increased. And uh, we know that there's going to be a tsunami, as I've called it, of evictions. And we can talk about all the other intricacies, but uh, Jason has given a very on point and specific uh, definition as to what affordable housing is and is not. And then so, you know, looking at that, like when you talk about being house burdened, especially, you know, renters, is that the majority of that 50%? Is it the majority of that 50% that is house burdened? Is that renters that are doing that? And if that's the case, that's then, correct. yeah, then so then you're talking about like, we talk about that homeowners are less burdened. And if you're house burdened as a renter, you're almost never getting out of that situation. You're never becoming a homeowner in, under those situations, under those circumstances. Is that right? It would be very difficult to do that. And we are a renter nation at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, most of Americans are renters uh, more than, than homeowners. Though I, I do like to say, um, even as I am a quote homeowner, I don't feel that I'm a homeowner, uh, that I'm, a, I'm still a renter. I rent from a bank who owns my house and I will be 75 years old before I actually own the house on the West side that I live in. So even when we think about that, um, we should really talk specifically about who has ownership of property. And it makes sense in the American context uh, because uh, as we always like to talk about uh, and, and define, uh, we are, are an economy here in the American context so, um, uh, specifically built on stolen uh, land and stolen labor. And I think that 
uh, we need to talk about how also we've gotten to this point and uh, who owns what and what the speculative market has created. And we can talk about gentrification and things that are much more in depth, but I know we're keeping this uh, right now at a very basic level. So I, I will stop there um, <laughs> and allow you to ask me other questions that are, are, are a little bit more on the. No, this is awesome. Please like go off in whatever direction that you feel comfortable with. And uh, something you mentioned in there, who does own the homes? Uh, who who owns these properties? Because, you know, you touched on the gentrification and it, it feels like that there's a lot of property you know, in the city. And, and I live on the West side too, where I, it's owned by like, is it outside investors? Like tell us who owns these properties. Jim Barnese. Jim Barnese. Yes. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I've done a lot of digging and research on um, non-owner occupied um, housing or sort of investor housing, right? Just looking at property records in the county and in the, at the municipal level, you know, just looking for the, the, the change in the number of properties that have turned over um, from people that live in those units, which is, you know, not, not getting too deep into the weeds on the data end, but when you look at property records, there's, there's the address and then there's a mailing address. And the mailing address, if it's the same as the owner address, so the property address means the person lives there, which is that's where they're receiving their tax bill. Um, a bunch of, of those don't have the mailing address matching to the home address, which if you back up even further into the data, you'll find that it's owned by an LLC, an incorporated entity. Um, we've seen um, the number of owner-occupied units um, in the city decline. So, uh, you know, somebody might own it and, and rent the first, own the first, you know, live in the first floor, rent the second floor. Um but owner occupancy is down and, and investor ownership is up. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think in 2000, when I first started looking at the data going back to 2000, um, international ownership was represented only by six countries in the city of Buffalo. Um, and that's, you know, your countries you would expect, right? Somebody from Canada owns one or somebody from the UK owns one, right? But the last time I checked about two years ago, it's about 32 different countries. And what you're seeing is Jesus. a massive influx of international dollars from Asia um, and the Middle East and other, and other sort of points in between flooding into the Buffalo marketplace and scooping mm. up, um, you know, lots at the auction. That's, that's some of it. So they're just mm -hmm. speculating on vacant lots, but they're also buying units. Mm -hmm. There's significant rent gap mm -hmm. to exploit in the city. So um, there's money to be made. Um, and, and that money to be made is really in, in driving up property prices and driving up rents. Um, so we have a massive housing commodity problem. Um, we've allowed the housing market to be turned into an investment vehicle. Mm -hmm. And we saw it with the crisis in 07, 08, 09. Um, and we're seeing it again now, which is, you know, the, the, as people get dispossessed, um, investors tend to step into that vacancy or that vacuum and buy up those, those units. And um, it takes local ownership out of the equation. Um, and it takes mm -hmm. local control out of the equation and it creates a lot mm -hmm. of systemic problems that we, we see in the marketplace right now. But if you listen to the Buffalo News, they will tell you everything's fine. And that's the challenge, right? <laughs> right. So the, the challenge we have in the city is really com combating that narrative, right? That exactly. there's a resurgence or if you're paying attention, this yep. asinine commercial on the radio about the comeback, like yep. comeback from what? Like poverty has been the same rate it's been for 20 years. Like what are we coming back from, right? So. Like we have to combat, I think, in this region, the narrative that gets pushed by elite interests and the reality that's grounded in, in our day-to-day -day lived experience. Jason, who is responsible for 
Like, is this a policy position, like a concerted, like the, the city of Buffalo governance? It's like, hey, let's make this as you know, cheap as possible for international investors to come in. Like, is that like a, something that somebody decided like, yep, we're going to pursue this and it's going to bring in an influx of money or is this just something that's happened organically? It's a, it's a, well, Adam Smith, right? I mean, it's the invisible hand of the economy, right? Free market economics, right? That we basically, we have a house for sale on the auction and the highest bid wins it, right? I mean, that's the ultimate supply and demand free market methodology. And so we have, you know, and they're not all being acquired through the auction, but a significant chunk of properties were acquired through the auction um, and highest bidder won, wins. And, and, you know, your average Buffalonian couldn't go to the auction and have the money down to bid. And so it's not just that system. It's, you know, the, the city is so cash poor um, and so fiscally mismanaged that it, it's allowed the auction to be treated just purely as a cash generator. So it's the highest and best sale price. Um, and and so the city's put ourselves put the put itself in this position to to have turned over or dispossessed the, the community of its of its asset. Um, and you know we can talk all day. And a lot of my work now is around what are we doing with these seven thousand plus publicly owned lots um, in the city's inventory, right? Because those aren't democratically being decided how those get this sort of um, sort of sent into the community for public gardens or community gardens or affordable housing production. So we have. Um, we have a systemic problem here, and it is a neoliberal sort of market-based strategy is always the solution problem. Well, let, let me clarify a little bit, Jason. Like, is so? Is there somebody going out and saying, "Hey, come to Buffalo"? You know, where you got all the all the land that you can buy, or is it like something being generated in a computer algorithm, and then these investors are just like, "Oh, okay, there is property in Buffalo," and they just gobble it up? Like, is it just being handled by some? bank's computer system or is there somebody in buffalo who's going out there like come buy our land yeah i think we have a little bit of a different um uh sort of reality going on we're, we're not like a, a vegas or phoenix or orlando where the market was crushed and you know blackstone stepped in and they bought an entire portfolio of single family units we're not seeing the wall street investor move into buffalo and buy up tons of things we're seeing the small developer mom and pop buy five lots or five houses. Um, and you, you know, if you look at the property records, you'll find, you know, somebody might own 30 different pieces of property. Um, so we're not seeing the, the corporate, like the high, the big corporate um, vulture swooping in here. Um, if you look around UB's main street campus, the vast majority of out of town ownership is Brooklyn. Like there was no Brooklyn ownership in 2000. There was like a mm. small <clears throat> handful of Brooklyn mailing addresses. Now there's over a thousand. Well, you know, my daughter's a senior in high school. She's getting ready to go to college. And I will tell you, it is cheaper to buy a home, a double, mm. and pay mortgage than it is to put your kid in a dorm. Right. right? Mm. So there's a lot of like loopholes and ways that people get into the market because they're doing that. And I think that's a lot of what's happening on the university. But, um, but yeah, I think it's a lot of word of mouth. Right. And then it's a lot of like, there's, there's been people that have come and held seminars on how to buy property at the auction. Right. So you have that sort of, um, speculator flipper milker mentality, which is like, how do we come into this place, acquire low cost property and then turn around and profit from it. So you get that mentality too. So I think it's a lot of different ways that that's happened. So this is, this is all HGTV's fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some, some six foot four ripped guy in a, you know, in a tight t-shirt flipping houses with his beautiful, you know, wife. Yeah. That, that mentality is like gobbled up a lot of a property. Cause you, 
that meant that that's a real thing, right? That it's like, so you remember those episodes? Yeah, I mean that's a that's <laughs> that happened a real, here. <laughs> yeah, that's a real reality that people yeah. have basically been told that like housing is a commodity to be bought and sold yeah. and profited from, and here's how to do it. So you yeah. put it on TV, and then people go, "Oh, I can do that, right? I, I can do that. It's not that hard." And, th- and so there's a whole ton of people that have tried that flipper thing. Um, that's why the city had, city had the anti-flipping task force a bunch of years back. Um, I don't think flipping was the the, the biggest the biggest sort of nut to crack, but um, but at the time it was a it was a critically identified issue. Harper, you mentioned earlier, you said that we're like a city and, and a nation really full of renters. Um, there's possibly people listening to this podcast who think maybe that's not so bad. Like why, you know, not everybody needs to own a house. Uh, maybe it might be better or even more affordable for people to rent. Can you maybe go in a little in depth? Like, is that a mistaken thought process? Like, do we need people to be owning houses? Is that better for our community, for our city? Well, I mean, Jason, so we could go on a number of topics that Jason even brought up and you were talking about public policy and how that plays a role. We didn't even get into the 485A tax exemption, which I'm sure Jason uh, would be more than happy to speak to later. But the Public Accountability Initiative has done a lot of work on how we're allowing um, large developers and people who do have money and moneyed interests um, basically um, take large swaths of property and consolidate power and then use a tax reassessment after 18 years uh, to have the neighborhoods and people in the neighborhoods foot the bill. So the reality is, is that we probably are not going to come back from a renter nation, but there are policies and, and ways of us going about making sure that equitable development is occurring in different places. Um, and there's a lot of um, our partners that we work with in coalition from Housing Justice for All, that's a statewide coalition and the Homes Guarantee from People's Action um, that are working towards socialized housing and um, to combat what Jason has so eloquently talked about in the commodification of housing. Um, And we really don't see it as a human right in the middle of a pandemic, we don't see it as healthcare. I think people are working up, <laughs> working uh, into this reality, are beginning to awaken to an understanding that housing is is healthcare. Um, and so there's really a need for protections for if we are on this trend and we're going to continue on this trend uh, as we make and what we believe at Push Buffalo about a just transition that's moving from an economy that doesn't work for everyday people and just works for the few and the elite to it being an equitable distribution of wealth, um, particularly uh, centering the lived experiences of those in the neighborhood and who have been most marginalized, namely uh, Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and other peoples of color. Uh, Then we need to um, really work towards the policies and that's why uh, push you know, we really think about first we start with a community planning process in which we ask people what it is that they think they need. We move to community organizing, which is, uh, you know, folks like myself on the streets really organizing the community into what it is that they think they need. And then uh, looking at policies that can uh, affect that change and then implementation processes that would then make sure that that reality actually takes place. Because even uh, as we know, when we pass progressive policy uh, initiatives and and such, that's really just a beginning point. You really have to actually have the implementation process and the follow through to make sure that it gets done because oftentimes it doesn't get done. um, It's left in the hands of consolidated power and uh, the power elite. So 
one thing that push that we're working on in terms of what you've described is if tenants are going to be um, most of, uh, of the composition of our, our country, then we need to have um, protections in place. And there have been significant wins over the last several years. Um, in New York City, they had, there was an opening in which they were looking um, at how um, they would be able to um, uh, keep laws in place that um, are, are for rent control. And that opened up after uh, 20 plus years. And there was a, a crack in a moment in which New York City was able to make sure that rental assistance was again, um, or uh, <laughs> rent control, excuse me, uh, was, was kept in the, in the city and also then impacted upstate and Western New York by giving them an opt-in option. Of course, uh, we're battling the narrative that Jason talked about in the, in the Buffalo News and through the mayor's office and the common council that gentrification in Buffalo just doesn't exist. And that cannot be further from the truth, especially as we look at the tax reassessment and what my house is valued at uh, 18 years ago and what it's valued at now is completely different. And we know that there's a gentrified West side. Um, and other policies that we're looking at locally is that we are working at PUSH, um, that you can check it out on our website, a Buffalo Tenant Bill of Rights, which includes the right to just cause eviction, uh, right to timely repairs, housing stability, uh, right to purchase uh, your home. So the first right of refusal, which other uh, places have put in the, uh, put into place. Uh, we can think of like uh, a Portland as, as someone who's championed or a municipality that's championed this. Uh, right to language access because of the, uh, how many people are here that we are um, a, a city that is um, uh, has so many different people speaking uh, different languages, immigrants and refugees coming from all over the world, the right to rent control, uh, the right to even know who owns your property. A lot of our tenants do not know actually who owns their property because there are so many LLCs that are set up in shell corporations that you can't even follow back who owns your property to even hold them accountable. And we believe in the right to representation through a tenant advocate position, which is pretty standard practice in a lot of municipalities. Again, a check and balance that needs to be there. Um, legal counsel, we know that uh, tenants, when they go to court, if they don't have legal counsel, uh, the eviction process will almost be inevitable in those situations. And so the right to counsel is of utmost importance. And then we'd also like to see a public rent fund set up as well. So you can check that all up on our website and join that fight. Um, but as you've talked about, if, if this is a position we're in, particularly in this moment, and we know that it's skews disproportionately to people of color, poor working class people, then we need to be on the front lines, making sure that they're protected um, and they have the same rights and, and uh, landlords have the responsibilities that they have and that they're fulfilling those obligations. Yeah, we'll be sure to share the website um, when we send out uh, the podcast here. Um, Harper, you mentioned something very interesting and in yeah, there's a lot of interesting things you touched on, but <laughs> I, I'd like to circle back on one thing in particular, when you mentioned that the mayor and the common council, you know, basically their position is that there's no gentrification. It's not real. All the money's coming into Buffalo. It's, it's good money. Um, yep. What, I mean, on, on that end of things, has there been any you mentioned the opt-in or that the city, this region really hasn't opted into that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, to, to rent control. To, to rent control. I mean, yeah. what, so if, if you're the average citizen in the city and you want to tell, you know, Mayor Byron Brown or your, your council member, what is it that we should be doing 
right now to make housing a little bit more affordable in the city? Like what, what should, if I, if I were to write a letter because I live in 1955 or maybe, an email, <laughs> maybe an email here in the future, uh, what, what, <laughs> when you get there in 30 years, right, right. What, <laughs> what would I say in my, my missive to the mayor? Like, what do I want you to do right now to make housing more affordable in the city of Buffalo? Well, there's so many things. Jason touched on the fact that there are uh, today the city of Buffalo is the largest landowner in the city of Buffalo and they could if they wanted to create a municipal land trust or they could turn it to over to neighborhoods to um, create community land trusts and then uh, string that together and make a federation of land trusts the first one that we uh, founded and uh, I was part of that fight and really proud to be in the Fruit Belt. The Fruit Belt Community Land Trust is the first ever functional community land trust in the city of Buffalo and so they could turn it over to the control of neighborhoods in order to allow them decision making and to create permanently affordable housing. Uh, we know that when economic downturns that were spoken about in 2007-2008 and again here during a global pandemic, um, the most resilient housing stock were those that were in community land trusts uh, because they're um, outside of the market um, and speculative markets, um, as, we, as we've already talked about. Uh, inclusionary zoning is a fight that we had been through, though I think that there's a lot of back and forth about whether or not that's an effective tool, because we've seen also in New York City that there's things called poor doors, so having poor people go in the back door um, as you try to have socioeconomic diversity within buildings and mandating that a percentage of affordable housing be instituted. PUSH has been able to accomplish this. Um, on a project by project basis, but we've never been able to pass an ordinance citywide. Um, and it really takes a lot of our time and energy and effort, but at the same time, developers have begun to institute this by themselves because they realize that they're gonna have a fight with uh, housing activists and organizations if they don't include affordable housing. And then I'm just gonna put it out there. <laughs> um, the, the mayor and uh, you know, I call it the unholy trinity it's the Buffalo News, it's the Buffalo Negro Partnership, uh, and it's um, uh, um, the mayor's office, right? It's, it's our city government. And it's the three of them that are connected and intertwined in uh, their talking points and what it is that they um, are, are aligned in. So when we tried to, for example, uh, talk about inclusionary zoning and the need for more units uh, within the city of Buffalo and the gentrification was very real and it hasn't reached all parts. I would admittedly say that there are parts that I think um, you can make a, a case that it hasn't hit as, as hard as it has in some areas, but of course gentrification has occurred and that is by the Buffalo billion and the, 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 our dollars basically creating uh, the vast inequities that now exist. Um, we tried to issue a report um, and to have um, some semblance of data to back that up because that's oftentimes what is needed, not people's personal stories, which I think is absolutely ridiculous as I talk to thousands of people about their situation every day. Um, but essentially the developers in our city got together using the BNP uh, as, uh, you know, as their organization to legitimize it and created a report saying that there, um, that gentrification isn't a problem, that there's plenty of units available, um, and that everything that we were working towards, um, I mean, by we, I mean, housing justice organizers, activists, uh, you know, people generally who are supportive of what we're talking about, um, to dismiss all of our claims, right? 
And so I think that um, the narrative shift that we've been able to create has been helpful, but um, I think that we need to make sure that we always understand that government is making a decision one way or the other. It's either for or against. And real estate developers pretty much fund the mayor, his campaign, and uh, keep, and he's accountable to them, right? And mm -hmm. so it needs to be, you need to listen to the people of Buffalo, not the real estate developers who are funding your campaign. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes me think of, God, it, it had to be like eight years ago. It was in, uh, there was an article on Art Voice lampooning it, basically, uh, back when Art Voice was a real alternative <laughs> newspaper <laughs> and not whatever garbage it you is now. You all remember that. Um, but uh, Chris Jacobs, who was county clerk at the time, not mm. Congressman Chris Jacobs, uh, but still... Still mostly a developer, Chris Jacobs, no matter what title he held in the public mm -hmm. sphere. Um, and he was proposing to uh, that the uh, government should force all the nonprofits on Delaware out of those mansions. Oh, yeah, that's right. So that they could be yep. turned into market rate apartments and move mm -hmm. and push all those nonprofits <laughs> into the east side where the property was cheap. Yeah. And I was like... First of that all, that was real. Yeah. yeah, that was that was a real that was a real. I mean, mm -hmm. until it got like a significant backlash. Like, you, this is this is a, a a nominal Republican, a Trump Republican now, but at that time right. he was considered right. more moderate, saying like, let's take private property away from people and give it to yeah. other people. Yeah, very socialist. <laughs> <laughs> Except you know his take it away from was. You know, nonprofits that he doesn't consider to be worthy. And I remember, like, one of the things I did some research into it because I was like, I was just so aghast at this idea of, like, <laughs> throughout the, 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 the decline of Buffalo in the 80s and the 90s, these nonprofits, who sure they don't, weren't paying property taxes, but they were keeping these mansions alive when nobody else could right. afford to and nobody else wanted to. And the Clement House, which is where the American Red Cross is, Right. was given specifically to the American Red Cross. And in the, the will, when it was given, if the Red Cross ever wants to sell that building, it has to go back to the family. It's, it can't be just go. Right. It, it, has, it specifically has to go back to the family. So even Chris Jacobs' idea that, like, well, we'll take the Red Cross and turn it into affordable housing. By the way, it, Jacobs may have uh, in, you know, it was probably an oversight but the Jacobs Executive Training Center, that's part of UB, which is uh, doesn't mm -hmm. pay taxes, wasn't listed in his uh, mansions on Delaware that should be uh, turned into pri uh, private funny. housing. It was very funny. Yeah. It, was, it was. I mean, like I said, it was probably just an oversight. He probably just. Uh, of course, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give the sly whistle. Uh, <laughs> so, ba, ba, ba. That's right. The air horn. Uh, Jason, I want to throw it to you. So. Pivot in another direction here. Where in Buffalo, where in the city, in the area, are we seeing uh, those pockets of affordable housing? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, the question is, it gets back to the sort of idea of neighborhoods of opportunity, right? I mean, if, it's, if it has a subsidy attached to it, which is it's uh, mm -hmm. federally subsidized, state subsidized, locally subsidized, it is pushed somewhere onto the east side. Um, if you dig into any of the research that Charles Buki did or the, some of the work that's been done by other researchers that identify clearly where our affordable housing units using federal money end up, 
they end up in neighborhoods that are on the opposite trajectory. Um, so we, we do two things. We, we place renters in neighborhoods that are um, disproportionately disconnected and loaded with um, uh, what we sort of consider to be concentrated disadvantage. Um, and at the same time, as much as we think a lot of the nonprofits do affordable housing production, um, and for particularly the home ownership one, which is kind of a challenge, um, to put someone in an affordable housing opportunity of, as a home buyer in a neighborhood where equity will never ever increase for them is a significant um, is a significant question for me. So we're always balancing this on the let's provide homeowners opportunity to be homeowners. We're always balancing that desire to, to turn people into homeowners with the where's the cheapest place we can do that in the city. Um, and that is usually on the east side, you know, somewhere around there. So, um, you know, I, I just started digging up. So we're doing some work for a LISC um, on a two county housing needs assessment. And I started just looking at where we built um, residential units in the, in the two county, in Erie County since 2000. Um, not including um, units that are more than four, that, you know, structures that have more than four units in them. Um, we built like 17,000 structures in, in, since 2000, and 72% of them are in the six outlying growing suburbs. The ones that we mm. built in the city of Buffalo are on the east side, right? So mm. we're creating home ownership and, and affordable housing units predominantly on the east side of Buffalo. Um, and so we're, there's this like moral dilemma, right? That we feel like we need to provide people with affordable housing opportunities, but we're, we're doing it in neighborhoods that are really, um, really not providing a lot of other things that, that afford, people who need affordable housing need, which is access to jobs, access to public transportation, access to good mm -hmm. educational opportunities, mm -hmm. walkability. Can I walk to a grocery store, a doctor's office, right? Uh, pharmacy. Uh, we're not putting them in those neighborhoods. So um, on one hand, we're solving the, we think we're solving or putting a dent in the affordable housing problem, but we're also creating and embedding a whole host of other social problems that come with, with the um, sort of geographic determinism of what it means to grow up in a neighborhood of, of concentrated poverty. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a chicken or egg kind of thing, I think. I think Jason's making a really good point here about intersectionality that we aren't, uh, you know, folks who live uh, lives that are happening uh, one issue at a time. Uh, we don't need transportation on Monday and affordable housing on Tuesday and education on Wednesday. Those things are all happening simultaneously. And so that's also why Push's model is multifaceted and multidimensional. And we are involved in so many things and people are often criticizing us for mission creep. And we say, no, that's actually all, all of these things are are happening simultaneously um, and to the people we work with. And therefore we need to be thinking holistically when we're building out the green development zone or um, you know, creating projects um, because we are a nonprofit developer ourselves um, that do exactly what uh, Jason has just outlined. Right, that, that makes me think of, we did an episode um, about like five weeks ago, a little over a month ago with uh, Dr. Russell Weaver from Cornell and we talked about that the theme of the episode was Buffalo's rebirth, LOL. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, we talked a, a lot about, you know, like that where there are opportunities for people to move into reasonably, it's just disconnected from the rest of the, the community. 
It's there. There is no transportation. You know, the public transportation is is abysmal in the city. It's it's yeah. It's it's bad if you live in the Elmwood Village. It's atrocious if you live in the East Side. Mm-hmm. And, right. they're, and they're cutting routes all the time. Yeah, and they, yeah. yeah, that's they keep cutting routes and raising fees. <clears throat> Nobody's ever shown yeah. them like, like you know, there's two ways to try to uh, you know hit your maximum. Uh, income on things you 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 can you can increase routes and lower fees and you get more riders yeah i mean public transportation is a huge elephant in the room i mean Mm -hmm. you know rusty and i did a a paper on walkability in the city and you know our sort of end point was um if we define walkability as as a social equity question right that we walkability isn't just because someone can walk to a bar and restaurant and get a $9 beer that walkability should be that someone can walk to a place of need. Um, that when we look at the city in sort of three component pieces, right. And I'm, we generally work, you know, most of our effort in the region is always focused North of the Buffalo river, right. Cause we've kind of left South Buffalo out of most of our conversations. It's been relatively <laughs> stable. That's for the, that's for the best. <laughs> as, as a South Buffalo. Stable and untouched forever. <laughs> Right? It is the same place it's always been. And I don't want to dabble in that neighborhood. So, As somebody, I'm from, Jason, I'm from South Buffalo originally, yeah. and, and I understand. Don't, nobody wants to dabble yeah. there. It's okay. And when you look at the data, like it's the one neighborhood that has stayed relatively working class. But right? yeah. it's what it's always been. And so mm-hmm. when you look at those three sort of communities, what I refer to as the wedge, so the south, the north Buffalo down to Allentown wedge, the west side mm-hmm. and then the east side, um, you know, our end point in that paper on walkability was walkability should be in existence in neighborhoods where automobile ownership is low and people mm-hmm. need walkability, right? And the Elmwood Village is actually the opposite. It's the most walkable neighborhood in Buffalo. It has the highest right. automobile ownership. So walkability is really a commodified luxury. So in the east side, it's the total opposite. The people that need the most walkability have the least because there's mm-hmm. not enough fabric there to justify businesses that support neighbors to move into that place. The West side's the challenge. It is the perfect reality for planners. It is absolutely undeniably diverse. It is, and that is by race and by income. And it is absolutely undeniably walkable and getting more and more walkable, but people are being pushed out. So Mm -hmm. planners go, okay, that's the goal, right? There's public transportation that goes to that neighborhood. It's diverse in terms of race and income. And we need mm-hmm. policies to keep those people in place. And that's where Buffalo falls on its face. That's right. Harper, you mentioned earlier, like I, I've just been thinking about this as we're sitting here, uh, you know, how you mentioned that mission creep maybe of push people accuse you of, of like, it's, it's a whole bunch of things. And I can't help but think of just being in the position of looking to buy a home and figuring out all these factors, like, yeah, how will I, you know, what school district will my kids be in? And, and how will we get to, to work wherever that is and whatever the hell that's going to look like in a post-COVID world? Um, like, I, I just, and, and Jason, you raised a lot of good points there too. Like, I, I guess where I'm coming to with this is like, where where is Buffalo in terms of other places? Like, are we completely ass backwards here? Yes. Yes. Uh, relative <laughs> yeah. to the rest of the country, the rest of the <laughs> world? A, there, like, literally, this is just one word. Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> like, period. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Moving on. Like, absolutely. <laughs> ass back. Like, we are so fucking ass backwards. It's atrocious. Like, literally, people are 
rescinding the policies that we haven't even gotten to enact yet. Like it's pathetic. It's pathetic. I talked about inclusionary housing or inclusionary zoning being something that was a, a campaign that we started. And you're just like, well, already we have the results from municipalities and they haven't turned out as well. We can learn mis- you know, we can learn from those mistakes. We can try to change and alter the policies to be more befitting, especially of a town like Buffalo. But the results are already in in most of these places. And Buffalo hasn't even done like, hello, folks. The Common Council literally passed Cario's law. It's the first law that they've passed in over a decade. Like the common council members are literally going to folks saying, how, how do we pass a law? Like you're a legislature, <laughs> like you're a legislator, like your job, your sole job, why you're in that building is to pass laws. And, and some and of them have been there long enough to have done that. You're asking me, you're asking me what you can do to pass a law. Well, thankfully, I worked at the Buffalo Common Council for two years, and it, it doesn't take a genius to understand what the policies are and procedures are to pass a law in the city of Buffalo. The city charter outlines what your role and responsibility is. So it's really sad when we have such a low bar in <laughs> is that we've passed one law in a decade. I mean, this is this is sad. This is truly sad. So I, I guess I just, sorry, sorry. I got Jason. No, 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 no. no Jason. Jason, for you, I guess my question is: is you have an army of undergrads? How come you're not doing more to fix this? <laughs> I'm a one man. I'm like your style. I like your style. Throw the person under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> Who's coming up? Well, do not I'm, hold. Do not hold the mayor accountable. If the mayor was on, believe me, I would ask him what the hell he was doing. <laughs> but I've I've tried since I got to Buff State in 2013. I have basically sort of been a one man planning department, and they gave me a lot of leeway to change the planning program. So I immediately revised the program, jammed social and racial equity into numbers number of courses. Um, I had Anthony Armstrong revise a, a, an old mm. neighborhood planning course and, and retitle it neighborhood um, planning and community development, which he now mm. teaches. Um, and my students last spring did a full inventory of vacant lots in the city and then a best use and best practices um, mm. report that they delivered to LISC and PPG. Um, Council member Nowakowski was in the room. Um, this is all Zoom. Um, uh, Council member Rivera's staff was in the room. Um, I have given up on uh, sort of working um, nicely, right? So um, I, I, my goal is to just flood the, flood the region with as much work and, and data and information as, as we possibly can to support, support the work. Um, you know, Rusty and I get a, lot of, get a lot of contract work in the region, but we, we do it in, on the projects we feel fit our moral and ethical obligations, mm-hmm. right? So the analysis mm-hmm. of impediments to fair housing was a report that Rusty and I, one mm-hmm. of our PhD students wrote. Um, we're doing a two-county um, needs assessment for LISP. We're working on a poverty and rent study for Erie County right now. Um, you know, we're, we're, I'm not out there talking the talk. We're just trying to do the work um, that supports the people that need it. And when mm-hmm. Harper and I first crossed paths, I think she probably walked, or he walked out of the room and said, you know what, fuck that guy. He's not in support of inclusionary zoning. And I wasn't, and I'm still not. Um, <laughs> I just don't think it works in our region. And that's not because mm-hmm. it's not valuable. I just don't think economically mm-hmm. it fits in a region where the market is super, super weak. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, it wasn't a situation where I wasn't in support of it. It was like, I felt like at the end of the day, 
It's a lot of effort on a, on a potentially symbolic win that would only result in a very small number of new units. Mm-hmm. And to me, there's mm-hmm. always just better strategies to get mm-hmm. what you want. And I, you know, things like land trusts are, are way better. Mm-hmm. There's way yeah. more opportunity on a land trust. Yeah. You know, getting the land bank to think differently, right? I mean, the land bank mm-hmm. is, is what it is. Yep. Um, yep. You know, coming up with a better disposition policy on those vacant lots of like vacant lots of reuse strategy. Um, mm-hmm. I felt like the inclusionary zoning was just a fight for a symbolic win and, 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 you know, it's in some ways punitive to the, to the developers, which I appreciate and in many ways. I worked for those guys <laughs> for five years. Um, but my thought was I worked for those guys for five years. I know how they think. And if you put, mm-hmm. you take profit out of their pocket, they're just going to go out to the suburbs. Cause they, I used to always tell my old boss, those guys don't care. Really. They don't. If you tell mm-hmm. them they can make more money or help a community, they never help the community. They never want to, <laughs> mm-hmm. but they're going to take, mm-hmm the regulation that comes with the inclusionary zoning, if we didn't attach a mm-hmm. subsidy to offset the cost between the market rate and the inclusionary unit, they're just going to take mm-hmm. their money out to the suburbs and mm-hmm. they're going to get that ROI that they expected in the city. And the, the only reason they're in the city is because that's where all the breaks are. If you take right. the breaks away or yeah. put more regulation that reduces their revenue, they go away. So for me, the inclusionary zoning, it works in places where the market is red hot. It just is a massive economic challenge here in if we mm-hmm. want to turn the, it's a good way to turn the, the investment in the downtown area off if we wanted to do that, right? So it's, again, it's just moral dilemma. Do we punish mm-hmm. the developers and make them go away and lose the value that they're bringing to downtown, even though they're probably not paying fucking property taxes anyway? Or do we, <laughs> right? They're not. Okay. They're not. <laughs> the system is, yeah, now they're just going to convert all of those to condos and they'll pay less taxes when they actually have to pay taxes, right? right? So yeah. Yeah, yeah, the system is is not set up for renters and your average homeowner is set up for, for developers and investors. And, and, and we're right. trying to figure out how, what, where are the levers in this system that we can push to get the result that we want without like making it worse. And that's, you know, the ultimate policy challenge. Are there any good members of the common council? <laughs> um, I'm going to be biased and say, <laughs> I'm going to say that Rusty and I have been working with, with Mitch on this land question for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that bias is, is Mitch took my urban geography class when he was at Buff State. Um, and probably got <laughs> a lot of my um, angst and, and um, sort of targeting of the city of Buffalo, but I think he, he mm-hmm. gets it. But um, mm-hmm. but you, he's young and he's he's passionate right now. And you've got mm-hmm. rough, you know, to kind of like, let's, you know, let's keep in, you know, Mitch on this land, this vacant land question. Um, so I, I know I like what he's thinking and where he's going and he's got, you know, 50% of the vacant lots are just in his district. Right. He's got the biggest problem. So the problem he has mm-hmm. is the, you know, university or North or whatever, Delaware, these districts, they don't, it's not a priority for them. They have single digit number of vacant lots in their community. Mitch has the most real property lots yeah, in the whole city. Right. And he has yeah. 50% of all the vacant lots. So he's got the yeah. biggest problem. So I think he realizes like his community or opportunity. Yeah. Uh, well, I stopped yeah. saying pro I, you say problem to the city. Cause they hear that because they've yeah. never gotten to the point where they hear the idea of opportunity or asset. Right. And, but here's yep. the problem. When you tell them the opportunity or asset, they hear the cha-ching. Right. And then they right. go, we got to sell these for what we can get for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah instead so, of how they used to give it to them for a dollar so that people yeah. could do something productive. <laughs> and now they just actually see it as, as you're saying cha-ching because uh, the, the fiscal ineptitude uh, that yeah. the city and the management, right. We're in a fiscal crisis. And I feel like no one is talking about that uh, or nearly as much as they need to. 
Well, it was predictable, right? I mean, at the end. Yeah. Of the oh, day, absolutely. Yeah. When you basically pay down your, when you're using reserves to, to offset potential tax increases because you think you're going to get a job, um, right. you think you're going to eventually leave office. And I mean, council members and the mayor, um, you're going to eventually mm-hmm. leave office and leave somebody else holding the bag um, mm-hmm. and you never do, then you're, you're kind of stuck in this really bad situation. And, um, you know, we've, if the interesting one I always use for my students is if you look at the Catholic health building downtown, right, right at Genesee in the 33, if you look at the pro forma and the reports and the information that came out of ECIDA when that was pushed out, it said right in the EC, right in the report, we will when we will build this project. Um, we will pay taxes on it while we do that. And then eventually we're going to immediately sell it to a nonprofit who will never pay property taxes on it. And so they took like $8 million in tax breaks and subsidy while Ellicott owned it to develop mm-hmm. it, build it, prepare it for Catholic health. And then as soon as they were done with the project and Catholic health was ready to move in, Catholic health bought it, took all of that subsidy that was paid for by the taxpayers. They'll never pay mm-hmm. taxes on it. Where's Chris mm-hmm. Jacobs on that one? <laughs> in Congress. In Congress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, it, is in Congress voting against marijuana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God. Oh God. Um, so just to sort of flip it a little bit. Um, I mean, I Harper, you mentioned like the vacant lot and Jason, you did too, but I, I'm seeing like all these vacant lots. I've seen them all my life living in the city of Buffalo. Um, I, I, I don't have any advanced, um, you know, like degrees in, in housing or whatever to know that's not normal. So wh- why are we in this, spot where we have like in Mitch Nowakowski's district, like a, a whole shit ton of vacant lots. And why are we just not putting people in them? Like just, it seems if I'm John Q public here in this example, I just see like all these vacant homes and what do they call them? Zombie properties for a right. while. I remember that. Like, why don't Your we Mickey just... Kearns is showing when you call them zombie properties? <laughs> I told you, I told you guys I'm from South Buffalo. <laughs> Again, I feel uncomfortable. I think it's time. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to give you a quick geography degree, right? I mean, we were a region that was impacted doubly by suburbanization and deindustrialization, right? So we were over leveraged in basically metals and manufacturing. When that went away, at the exact same time, we were flooding the market with, with mortgages that privileged the suburbs. We emptied the city through job loss and through suburbanization. And we've never caught back up. We've spent 70 plus years bullshitting and boosterizing our way to nothing, right? So it's always some bullshit story about a convention center or a stadium or a canal site or whatever. <laughs> and we never get to the systematic problem that got us here in the first place, right? So that's why we have vacant lots. And we'll always have vacant lots in my lifetime. I'm 46 years old. It's not going away in my lifetime because we don't have the effective visionary leadership to change it. I've I ask kids all the time, who's the visionary politician in Western New York? Stefan Mahalo. Well, well, right now, I think it's April Baskin. I think it's April Baskin right now. There you go. I do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, I don't even think that that's the case. I think she's 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 down the path of, of, of where everybody that gets a position of power in Erie County gets, right? So you start out great. We're hoping. And you get yeah. ground up by the machine. Hoping, we're hoping not, but I hear yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, if I had to pick two people to run – you know, the city of Buffalo, I'd take her and Maria White all day long. I just would. I just would. Yeah, I mean, put those two people in charge and let them 
run it. I mean, Maria was my adult boss for two years, and I've worked for people in the public, private, academic sector. It is unbelievable. Yeah. And she's got, there's no one that's got the leadership skill and the vision that she does. It just amazes me. Um, so she would be a great couldn't agree more. mayor. Yeah. Couldn't agree she more. would be a great mayor. But you got to put them in positions where they're not beholden to someone above them. Mm-hmm. That's the challenge, right? That you have to have them calling the shots. And April's kind of in that somewhat shot-calling position, but not enough. April's got that unique district that allows her to see the city of Buffalo as it is because it goes from the east side all the way across to the west side. She just cuts right across the middle. I mean, she's got east side, she's got Elmwood Village, she's got west side. I mean, she's got everything going on. I used to live in her district. Uh, I'm a big proponent and a big supporter of April's. And... um, she, That's my chairwoman. <laughs> she, yeah, and, and she can see she's got a, she's got because of the way of its the way that's gerrymandered, the way it's drawn, she actually gets to see the city of Buffalo as it actually is. She's not just sitting there. It's not like she has just an Elmwood Village district and she thinks that everything is fucking hunky dory. Right. That you know, what I mean, she's got like she can see the gentrification issues on the west side. Mm-hmm. She can see the nonsense that is just. The, the pure cash flow that is Elmwood Village, and she can see the problems that you have from hollowing out in the east side. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree. I mean, I think April's fantastic. I worked for Maria for a while, just like Jason did. Um, mm-hmm. I have nothing but good things to say about Maria. I mean, mm-hmm. I have good things to say about a, a lot of politicians. I have bad things to say about a lot of politicians, too. I did <laughs> ask not less than 10 minutes ago if there's any good members of the Common Council, which is going to get yeah, me which, some flack. Which I, didn't, I never gave a response to that, but I think that what it, I, I think is lacking in the Common Council is I don't see anyone with a holistic, progressive uh, vision. Uh, and we can have people that are good on a certain issue or particular issue, um, but I don't see anyone who has a comprehensive worldview and, uh, and maintains and sustains that over time to push anything forward and to push a policy agenda specifically forward. And that's what makes them so lackluster to me. Yeah. I mean, though, to, to, you know, similar Mitch is similar to April in that the way his district mm-hmm. is gerrymandered, he gets to see a, a wider swath of Mm-hmm. what's going on in the city than other yeah. members of the common council do because because he's Fillmore that includes Allentown because obviously if you live in the city of Buffalo, you're like, well, mm-hmm. of course those two districts are together. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but the way it's drawn, it's it's kind of like this, this like bird-shaped district. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was for Dave Franzak's benefit, but it, <laughs> it worked out for Mitch Nowakowski. Um but, I mean, because of the way his district is drawn, he does get to see, I mean, he's got one of the hottest markets in the city in Allentown in his district, and he's got mm-hmm. 50% of the vacant properties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so if I had a hope of any common council member really getting some of these issues, mm-hmm. it would be with Mitch. Uh, I agree. Yeah. So, Harper, I know, you know, with Push, you obviously talked <laughs> to... Um, you obviously talk to a lot of people who are struggling to, you know, afford housing or trying to get into housing. Let, let, let's talk a little bit about like the human cost of this. That we've got fucking Mitch Nowakowski's district with fifty percent of it is vacant lots. And like, who are the people who who don't have homes, who are pushing for homes, who are new homeowners? You know, like wh- 
what is the human element of people who are severely being affected by Buffalo's lack of action and effort to make housing affordable here? Uh, well, the human cost of that is that uh, right when COVID-19 hit, uh, PUSH basically realigned all of its uh, work and uh, pivoted very quickly to set up mutual aid and solidarity support efforts. Um, and we had our staff, including myself, on the phone 12 to 14 hours a, a day to try to talk to people about what resources we were able to get through philanthropy and our partners, both locally and uh, nationally, uh, in order to, uh, when basically the social safety net and the bottom fell out and everything was exacerbated that we talk about and we have been talking about for the past 45 minutes, um, when that cost uh, came, uh, you know, we're really proud of the work that we were able to do in terms of, you know, we gave rental assistance to over 150 families. We provided um, uh, technology to students who were waiting for the BPS to get the shipments in of iPads um, and really saw what the digital divide looks like. We know the statistics, we know that it's abysmal, but uh, the real impacts of people calling us nonstop. We set up a mutual aid hub at the former school 77, which is where our headquarters is. And we serve thousands of people there. We basically set up a food pantry. That is not what Push Buffalo does, right? Um, we were sending people into grocery stores and we were doing as much as we possibly could. And hearing people's stories, I tell the story often of, um, you know, after weeks and, and uh, weeks of doing this, that there was a reporter who wanted to talk to us and a lot of people wanted to talk to us and call up Push often about what it is a human element. Can you speak to the tenants and, and to the homeowners and the folks, if you're calling for a cancellation of rent or if you're talking about rental assistance or subsidies or whatever it might be, you know, uh, these are the policies you're working towards, but, or what you're calling for, but can you tell us about the individuals? And it was a routine conversation. I get called by a lot of people, you, you know, you hit me up and I responded to you. It's not a very emotional experience, right? I just tell them what it is that I know. Uh, and I, I just burst into tears on the phone because all of that, all of those stories, all of it, the gravity of the matter, uh, all that we were able to, but was also not able to provide and no help was coming at the local, at the statewide or the federal, especially the federal level. Um, none, of those, none of those dollars were coming uh, to us. Uh, you know, I, I said, this is just too much to bear. And I'm sorry, like you were asking me like a fairly simple question and, and it led to, to this outcome. And uh, they said, actually, no, I've been a reporter for 20 years and I've never had the experience of almost every phone call that I, that I make to people ends in the same way. People just in tears talking about what they're, what they're understanding and what they're seeing out in the field, talking about the Fillmore district, particularly, I spend most of my time. Um, and, and again, Bush is a place-based initiative mostly on Buffalo's west side is where we are located, but we've expanded uh, even in our bylaws to be the whole city of Buffalo because we understand that there's ramifications for all the policies and how they have uh, a domino effect. And I spend most of my time in the Fillmore district speaking to tenants who are either part of the AG's lawsuit on lead, um, landlords who are intentionally making children sick, um, People have said to me in, in, at various times, the tenants I work with, 
elected officials wouldn't let their pets live where I live. And they have no accountability right now because it's a double-edged sword. Uh, there's a eviction moratorium, it's not universal anymore, but that is in play, which means that legally, landlords aren't supposed to be evicting people. But what are they doing? They're doing what is called a self-help eviction, which means that they come and they change the locks on people's doors, which is both illegal and immoral. So the day after Thanksgiving, I get a call from a tenant who the locks were changed twice. The police are supposed to be called and they're supposed to uh, you know, facilitate, uh, you know, folks being able to be back in their homes. They found out that they had paid till the end of the month. A new tenant had already been moved in <laughs> to their house. Their stuff was put in the garage and it was on the day that the woman's son, it's the anniversary of her son's death. So this is what she's contending with the day after Thanksgiving. And this is not an abnormal story. Yeah. I, this is day after day after day, the stories that are happening right here in Buffalo. Um, even when people are keeping up on the rent, when they're paying it, when they're doing the best they can in really shitty conditions and situations exacerbated by COVID-19, um, this, is, this is what is happening uh, across, across the board. Um, so the human element cannot be stressed enough. These are real people with real lives. They have names, they have families. Um, and so we're not talking about some abstraction. We're not talking about just percentages. And it, 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 um, it's really an understanding of who I am, where I am in my life and the privilege that I have um, to be in solidarity and support to these individuals day after day. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's, you know, we're, we're getting close to an hour I think that's probably, you know, that kind of powerful statement is probably a good place for us to close this up unless there's something that you guys really want to add. Harper, Jason. Well, I, the only thing I would add is that the challenge that Harper's dealing with, you know, when, when we talked to stakeholders and we did the analysis of impediments, you know, that we're thinking sort of, I'm, Rusty and I are trying to play chess, right? So the challenge that the people like Harper and everybody else are dealing with is, is you're playing checkers, man. You're, you're one, you can right. barely get one step ahead of everything. So we, we sort of refer to it as we're trying to be fire preventers, um, you know, mm -hmm. thinking systematically and in, in seven or eight steps ahead while our homeowner groups and nonprofit organizations are trying to put out fires, um, particularly mm -hmm. in the COVID era. Um, but you know, the COVID's going to, you know, we're going to run into the same bullshit we ran into in the last housing crisis, which is we somehow put a bandaid on the system and then the system replicates itself with the next issue. And the next issue was COVID. So if we don't fix the housing system so that the next crisis, which is certain, doesn't mm -hmm. result in the same outcomes and outputs, then we're not, we're not housing researchers. We're not policymakers. We're not community organizers. We're, right. we're just bandaid appliers. And so at the end of the day, like what we need is a two two pronged approach here. The housing people that are working on the ground, helping those households, those homeowners that are getting screwed over in this marketplace, have to continue to be supported. But there needs to be a parallel path of of high level research, analysis, and policy development that works hard to try to change the system as it currently exists. Because if we don't have that parallel track. We're just going to spend a lot of time on the day-to-day Band-Aid application um, that doesn't solve the, the, right. the systematic problem. Right. Well, I don't Mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, I don't. So, that, uh, that's it, Jason. That's. I want to. I just want to thank both of you for being on uh, today. 
Um, really, it's been great listening to you and learning from you. Um, uh, can't wait to do more personally to help both of you with the projects and, and get involved myself. Um, and uh, I don't know what else you guys want to say, but um, we, we always like to ask everybody to give out their social media information in case you want to give it out so people can follow you and, and track you and see what you're saying and what you're doing. Yeah, so if you want a, a piece of my sort of day-to-day angst where I unload my <laughs> anger every day, um, it's uh, Jason Knight PhD. That is my sort of Twitter handle. Um, yeah, so I, I tend to... Knight like the chess piece, not Knight yeah, like yeah. the time of day. You know how many times I've told people in my life that my last name starts with a K? It's ridiculous. <laughs> I went to buy a turkey. I'm not even joking. I went, to buy a, I went to pick up our turkey two weeks ago, and the woman's like, we don't have a Knight. And I'm like, look under N-I-G-H-T. Sure enough. <laughs> yeah, and my, my personal Twitter handle is uh, Harper S.E. Bishop. And you can follow Push Buffalo on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all under Push Buffalo. Uh, we have a very uh, robust uh, social media presence that I think uh, people will be able to follow and uh, also engage with and, and get involved. We're, we always welcome participation. Harper, what was that website that you mentioned earlier one more time? It's www.pushbuffalo.org. Awesome. Great. Um, If anybody wants to follow me on Twitter, I'm at James Tamel, T as in Thomas, A-M as in Michael, O-L. Ree will give us his Twitter address when it's a cold day in hell. That's right. (laughs) It's funny, you know, I've been sucked back into it again just just because what the hell else are we doing? But, you know, for the show, I tell everybody you can follow me right to hell. So it's, you know, (laughs) I just don't want to be harassed, but maybe, maybe someday I will throw out my social media info again. Who knows? And, uh, and rad Ryan, what's your social media? What's your Twitter? My rad social media Twitter is the real Ryan Steele. Duh. Thanks again, Harper, Jason, you've been incredible. And, Folks, yeah, we'll be back again next week. Um, Who knows what we'd be talking about, but we certainly had an awesome episode this week. Awesome conversation. Thanks again, everybody. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Are you afraid of me now? Do you feel?